Well, good morning. It's very good to be here with you, and um, I look forward to our study together in um, a very interesting chapter in the Bible. Um, the reason I am the one here speaking today is that I have come to save the day. Now, what does that mean? Well, maybe some of you remember back around December 30th, 31st, January 1st, you made this New Year's resolution to read the entire Bible through in a year. And if you went according to one plan where you read like two or three chapters a day, and you started with Genesis, somewhere in the last few days or maybe now or maybe in a couple of days, you come to Leviticus. Um, that book on which lots of good New Year's resolutions have uh, died. And uh, that's why I am here, to encourage you uh, to uh, continue uh, reading in that book. And we're going to hopefully see this morning how important that book is for our understanding of, of Jesus and of the New Testament and what our Lord, our Savior, Christ Jesus, has done for us. I have actually just finished a commentary on the book of Leviticus, and it's sitting at the publishers now for them to do some fine um, fine tooth combing and editing and find all the mistakes that I made. Um, I have a couple of uh, uh, friends, uh, acquaintances, who have also written commentaries on Leviticus. Um, one of my acquaintances who has written a commentary just in the last few years is a guy named Jay, Jay Sklar. And uh, he mentions uh, in the very beginning of his commentary that whenever he's in a social gathering and someone asks him what he does for a living, well, he says, I'm a professor of theology at a seminary. And then they ask him, well, what do you teach in particular? He says, I teach in particular in the area of Old Testament. And uh, then they say, well, what do you, do you specialize in the Old Testament? And he says, well, yes, I specialize in the book of Leviticus. And the, he says the, the look that he gets back from that answer is something along the lines of, well, at least he's not hurting anybody, uh, that kind of idea. Uh, another friend uh, has uh, mentioned that uh, before he has been told that whenever he tells someone that he is in he has spent most of his life studying Leviticus, they reply by saying, I'll bet you're just the life of the party, aren't you? <laughs> that kind of idea. So uh, nevertheless, in spite of all the bad rap the book gets, I have come here to try to redeem the book for you and encourage you, keep up in that Bible reading plan because there's uh, gold in the hills. Uh, the title for the message this morning is forgiven. And sometimes I think we take the idea that we are forgiven uh, perhaps um, way too uh, glibly. We take it for granted. Um, there was this famous 18th century philosopher uh, who was not really much of a churchgoer, not much of a 
a practicing Christian, and uh, he was asked by someone, do you think that when you die and go to heaven, or if, if you land up in heaven, do you think the Lord will forgive you for all your sins? And the philosopher answered back by saying, of course he will. That's his business. Well, I want to try to put a little bit of a different ring on that and suggest that Leviticus, as well as the entire New Testament, teaches us that it just isn't quite that easy as saying, of course he will. That's his business. There's more to it than that. Now, um, in the chapter that Pastor Mark read for us in, in um, uh, Leviticus 4, and actually the entire description of, atone, of, of the sin offering starts at 4.1 and goes through 5.13, so we spared you 13 verses there. But uh, in that chapter, it deals with this whole idea of what we refer to as atonement. And if you'll notice, there are seven occurrences where it says there in chapter 4 as well as chapter 5, seven times it says, 420, the priest will make atonement. 426, the priest will make atonement. And it keeps on going, 431, 435, 56, 510, 513, the priest will make atonement. And we had to explore what that idea of atonement actually means. Furthermore, six times in this whole area, it mentions the idea of forgiveness. 420, the priest will make atonement and they will be forgiven. 426, he will be forgiven. 431, they, that is the community, will be forgiven. 435, they will be forgiven. 510, 513, they will be forgiven. So there's something about the idea of atonement that results in forgiveness. Because their sins are atoned for, then they are also forgiven. But what does it mean to atone for sins? And then one other very interesting repetition that takes place in these verses is the whole idea of the offerer of the animal laying their head or laying their hand on the head of the animal. 4-4, Aaron the priest will lay his hand on the head of the animal that he offers for himself. 4-15, the community, they will, the leaders of the community will lay their hand on the bull's head. 424, for other members of the community, lay his hand on the goat's head. 429, lay their hand on the head of the sin offering. 433, lay their hand on its head. So something significant is involved there as well. And furthermore, let me just mention that there's a bit of a, um, um, uh, a, minimiz a minimalization in that translation, lay your hand. Um, in the Hebrew, it actually is more forceful. It says, you will press your hand on the head of the bull or the goat or the lamb. Um, other translations say, 
you will lean your hand on the pillow. And so in some ways, there's an indication there by putting your head hand on the head of the animal, there's indication that there's something happening, there's something uh, taking place there. Now, in older times, the idea was that the idea was that you were transferring your sin onto the onto the animal. And I think that's still involved, but I think it's even more than that. It's the idea that you are making a complete identification with that animal. That animal becomes you. That animal takes your place. That animal represents you. So taking those things all together, the idea of atonement, the idea of being forgiven, the idea of that identification with the animal that is being sacrificed, leads us to the idea of what that word atone actually means. Now there are a whole bunch of definitions for the word atonement that you'll read in the commentaries that you uh, look at. But I want to pick out four particular elements that I think are present in this whole idea of atonement. First of all, there's the idea of purification. To even come before God with an offering in some way, you have to in some you have to enter the area of the tabernacle, the, the courtyard, the tent of meeting. You have to enter that area some way in, in a purified state. And you do that by bringing this animal that is going to be, as it were, taking your place. You identify with that animal, and the animal takes your place. So there's the idea of purification. Second, there's the whole idea of ransom. That is, in some way, before you bring that sacrifice, your life is in danger. You are a sinner. You have sinned against God. And now that animal you bring is a ransom for you. It ransoms your life. Because it dies, you don't die. That animal takes your place. You have become so identified with that animal that when it dies, it represents your death so you don't have to die. Third, there's the idea of what we refer to as expiation. The animal expiates your sin. That is, it removes them. It cleanses you. It makes you clean. It eliminates your sin. And then finally, and this is one that is disputed among commentators, and it's also disputed among modern uh, theologians of a more, um, I guess, liberal type sort, and that is there's that idea of propitiation or propitiate. That is, in some way, when that animal is offered in your place and dies in your place, the animal propitiates God. The animal appeases God, placates him, satisfies him, satisfies his need for justice, satisfies his need for holiness, satisfies his need that justice has in some way been executed in regards to that sin. And this is where that statement by that philosopher comes into play. It's not simply that God is in the forgiving business, but that God 
forgives at a great cost. And that animal that is being offered appeases him, placates him, satisfies him, meets the demands of his holiness, meets the demands of his justice. And again, like, as I said before, there are many um, more liberal, more progressive type uh, theologians these days who deny that whole area and say that it's not about that. Uh, earlier in the service, we sang one of uh, Keith and K Kristen Getty's songs. And one of the most popular songs in evangelical Christianity today is that song, that collaboration between Keith Getty and Stuart Townend, In Christ Alone. And it has that famous line in there where it says, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And there are denominations that have refused to include that song in their hymnal and to sing it because they don't believe that God's justice and holiness and wrath needed to be satisfied in some way. So I argue there's propitiation taking place here. In some way, that sacrifice causes the wrath of God to be averted. It satisfies his need for justice with regards to our sin. He forgives us, but he forgives us because his justice is satisfied as well. And then there's this whole matter of what's happening with the blood. Notice um, the different ways in which the blood is handled in this chapter. If the priest is the one who brings an offering, the blood of the animal is taken inside the tabernacle, inside that covered portion of the tabernacle area, is taken inside, and the blood is sprinkled. And there's, and there's some debate here, but I believe that in some way the blood is sprinkled either on or right in front of the uh, veil or the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was and where God dwelled among his people. The blood of the sacrificed animal is taken right into the tabernacle holy place, as it were, and sprinkled there either on the curtain or perhaps even on the Ark of the Covenant himself, the place where God is envisioned as sitting and dwelling and reigning. The same thing is the true for the community. If the entire community sins, the blood is taken there and sprinkled in front of the veil or on the veil or perhaps even on the Ark of the Covenant behind the veil. If it's for a leader of the community, just one individual person, a leader of the community, that blood is sprinkled or smeared or splattered on the altar of burnt offering in the courtyard, in the open area of the tabernacle. And the same thing is true for uh, any uh, regular uh, member of the community. That's where the blood um, is sprinkled or splattered. Now, Leviticus 17.11 tells us something very interesting. It says, the life of a creature is in the blood. 
and, I, and this is God speaking through to Moses. He says, the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's own sin. But the question that comes out of this is, how does the blood do that? How does the blood make atonement for the life? How does that work? Well, I believe that uh, one commentator in particular, and, and um, I mean, he's not by himself in this, but I've been persuaded by his arguments as to what happens with that blood sprinkling. Remember, the offerer of the animal has put his hand on the head of the animal. There is this identification that takes place. And now that offerer is identified with the animal, including the offerer's sin. Then that animal is slaughtered. The blood is uh, flow. Blood is released, as it were, it flows, and then that blood is sprinkled in front of the curtain in the holy place and on the furniture in the courtyard, in the open area. And what's happening there? And Game and others have argued, and I agree with them, and that is that the symbolism behind that, the ritual symbolism behind that, is that in some way that sin, which has been transferred onto the animal and it takes up their whole being now, that animal's blood is being splattered on the tabernacle furniture, on the tabernacle curtains, the place where God dwells, the place where he lives, is now being contaminated by the animal's blood, which had been contaminated by the offerer's sin. Or in other words, this was an Old Testament way of showing that God himself was suffering and incurring the cost for his people's sin. The blood of the animal, contaminated now by sin, is splattered on the tabernacle itself, on the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place. It costs God to forgive us our sin. And that's what's involved here. Hebrews 9.22 says the same thing. The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So on account of this, I am, uh, to reiterate here, a firm believer in the idea of what is referred to as penal substitutionary atonement. Atonement. What is done to make up for our sins? Substitution, the idea that something takes our place in order to atone for our sins. And then penal, that is, a penalty is being paid in that atonement. And I believe this all points forward to what happens in the New Testament, where it says that Christ dies for our sins. 
He provides an atonement for us. He is our substitute. He pays the penalty for our sin. Now again, there are all kinds of ideas here that, uh, that have come up to, to try to, to, to argue against this understanding, but I don't think they really work in the end. One of those is that in Leviticus 5, as the, as the Lord gives all these options for what people can bring, depending on their status in the community and depending upon their economic status, one of the options is that if someone is so poor that they don't own a bull or a lamb or a goat or not even uh, a pigeon or a dove, if they are so poor they don't have own any animals at all, they can bring barley. They can bring a grain offering. And they can offer that and have their sins forgiven. And then you have those who say, see, here is an atonement that didn't need blood to be shed. Here, here is someone having their sins atoned for and being forgiven, even though they brought grain and not an animal offering. Blood is not necessary. At the same time, two answers to that. The first one is this. This is a concession. There will be very few people in the community who couldn't bring something, not even a pigeon, in order to have their sins atoned for. But not only that, but it specifies that when the person brings that barley or grain offering, you take some of that barley or grain offering and you put it on the altar, and then it says you put it on the altar on top of the animal offering. So in some way, what I think is happening here is that the other offerings are being seen as validating that grain offering. The grain offering gets its uh, atoning power, as it were, its atoning authority from the other meat offerings that are on the altar. And the blood from those meat offerings atones for the sins of the people. So I think when it all comes together, the Old Testament gives us a foretaste. It gives us a shadow. It points forward to what is happening in the New Testament. Now, the rest of our time here is going to be spent in the New Testament, just reading some verses here. But verses that, frankly, only make sense in the context of the book of Leviticus. Three or four years ago, um, an Episcopal priest in the U.S., uh, Fleming Rutledge, came out with a book entitled The Crucifixion, Understanding the Death of Jesus Christ. Now, if you were to ask me, suppose you were stranded on a desert island and you could take any book you wanted to with you, but you couldn't take your Bible, what book would you take? And I believe I would take this book, Understanding the Death of Christ, The Crucifixion by Fleming Rutledge. She does a wonderful job there of describing what happened in the death of Jesus Christ. 
just a fantastic book. But in that book, she gives a quotation from some scholar, I forget his name now, but the person says this, you cannot understand the New Testament if you haven't read the Old Testament. It just doesn't make sense. And in fact, they even say it more forcefully than that. They say, without the Old Testament, the New Testament doesn't work. Now, what I want to do for the rest of our time here is just read some passages. I'll, I'll make a few brief comments along the way, but I just want you to see how pervasive this idea of Christ atoning for us, atoning in order to forgive our sins, shedding his blood for us, I want you to see just how pervasive that is in the New Testament. So, Matthew 26, 28. This is the night before Jesus is crucified. This is where he institutes the Lord's Supper. And after having taken the bread and broken that and given it to the disciples, he then takes the cup and he says to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus specifically says here, my blood is poured out in order that your sins might be forgiven. It's hard to understand how it could be any more stark, any more clearer than that. What Jesus himself envisions he is doing the next day when he dies on the cross. And then Mark 10.45, Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when he says to give his life as a ransom for many, that goes right back to what those Old Testament sacrifices did. They ransomed the life of the offerer. The animal dies so that the offerer doesn't die. Ransoms his life. Luke 18.13. This is the famous story that Jesus tells of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Um, in the old King James Version, it was the Pharisee and the publican, and they both go to present themselves at the temple, and they pray, and the Pharisee thanks God basically for how good the Pharisee is and how, how wonderful he has been in observing the law. But the tax collector, Jesus says, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me a sinner. Now, what is striking about the way Jesus tells this story is that when it comes to that phrase, have mercy on me, it's not the regular word in the New Testament that's used many, many times to have mercy, but rather it is a word that ties back directly to the word that is used in Leviticus that has to do with atonement and propitiation, placating God, 
appeasing him, averting his wrath. And what's interesting here is where this passage comes. In the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus three times tells his disciples, well, he says it the first time in Luke 9, then Jesus comes after that, but he says to them, men, we are going to go to Jerusalem. And when we go there, the Son of Man, that is me, Jesus, the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of the Gentiles. They will arrest him. They will scourge him. They will mock him. They will crucify him. Three times he takes them aside and tells them. And then in Luke 9, we are told that Jesus set his face. A very strong phrase there. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. In Luke 9, and all the way through the Gospel of Luke until you get to the chapter where Jesus rides triumphantly into Jerusalem, he is resolutely making his way to Jerusalem where he will be arrested, betrayed, scourged, mocked, crucified, and die for sin. And so when Jesus tells this story, I think he purposely uses this more uncommon form for what the tax collector says to go along with what he has been doing those nine chapters where he's made this journey so far. The tax collector says to God, be propitiated. Be placated, be appeased, avert your wrath. And then that points to what Jesus does to answer the tax collector's prayer when he dies for his sins on the cross. Luke 22, 20, again, this corresponds to what we already read in Matthew. Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. There's that idea of forgiveness again. John 1.29, when John the Baptist sees Jesus off in a distance, and it says that John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Deftly pointing back to the sacrifices in the Old Testament where the lamb or the goat or the bull in its, in its death took away the sins of the offering. Romans 3.25, it says there that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. God is the one who offers Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for our sins. He is the one who presents him to be the sin bearer for our sins. Romans 5.9, Paul says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Jesus' sacrifice 
takes away our sins, saves us from the wrath of God. Romans chapter 8. This is a very interesting passage here. Paul says, There is now no condemnation for those who were in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Catch that. God sent his own Son to be the sin offering. God sent his Son to be the lamb, the bull, the goat. And then it says in that last line there, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. And as most Romans commentators will will tell you this, it's almost certain that when it says he condemned sin in the flesh, we should understand that to mean he condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus Christ. It was our sin. They were condemned, but they were condemned in the body of Jesus Christ. Going on, Ephesians 1.7, In him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. We are redeemed, ransomed, bought back by the blood of Jesus. Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Colossians 1, 19-22. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is what the old, the ancient church fathers referred to as the sweet exchange. The exchange that takes place between Christ and us. Christ takes our sins, and in exchange for them, he gives us his righteousness. Hebrews 727. Unlike the other priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. In the Old Testament, every day the high priest would present these sin offerings. And 
he would present offerings for himself because of his own sins and present offerings for the people because of their sins. Now Jesus, the great high priest, comes, and he only offers one sacrifice for sins that forgives forever and ever. But he doesn't offer a bull or a goat or a lamb or a pigeon or a dove or a cup of barley. He offers himself, his own body for our sins. Hebrews 9, verse 11, and going on. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of his creation. He did not enter it by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Jesus did what the Old Testament high priest did. He entered into the holy place and offered blood, but it wasn't animal blood. It was his blood by his own blood, thus obtaining redemption for us. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who were called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died, and there's that word again, he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Hebrews 9, he, Christ, has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting him. Hebrews 10, we have been made holy, we have been purified, we have been cleansed through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. So when those sacrifices were offered in the Old Testament, they were like shadows, types, placeholders until Jesus Christ himself came to die for our sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Hebrews 12, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember the Cain and Abel story where God said to Cain that your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground? That blood cried for vengeance. Christ's blood cries for forgiveness. Hebrews 13, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gates to make the people holy through his own blood. 1 John 1.7 But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. There it is. The blood of Jesus purifies us from our sin. 1 John 2 My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Very much like that song we sang at the very beginning by a charity band choir. Uh, there is one who stands in the holy place and pleads for me, and he pleads his blood for me. 1 John 4, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 Peter 1, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 1 Peter 2, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Revelation 1.5 To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by our blood. One of my acquaintances in the Old Testament scholar world is a Greek Old Testament scholar named Myrto Theocottus. And one day on her Facebook post, she said this, and I decided to include it in my commentary. She says, sacrifice, primal and universal, is nothing more than the visible representation that evil can be removed, sin can be erased, defilement can be cleansed, harmony can be restored. Leviticus outlines the foundations of the law. In many ways, what we come across in Leviticus is not about one little scene there in the desert where Jesus, where God gave instructions about how you sacrifice animals. It was part of a divine plan from the very foundation of the world 
where God purposed in Christ to sacrifice his son for our sins. And that's why we read also in 1 Peter, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world to be the sacrifice for our sins. And Revelation 13, 8 says the same. The lamb who was slain from the creation of song written by one of my Bible publishers, Ed Bostrom, and it goes like this. The cross was carried in God's heart long ere there was a Calvary. The lamb was slain, the altar stained, before the world began, and long before the angels ever sang his praise on high, he thought of me and all my sins and said, For the very foundation of the world. Yes, God forgives sinners, but he doesn't forget the cross because of the blood of the Lamb slain. As we close here, a couple of things. In homiletics classes and in preaching classes in seminaries, it's, uh, it's uh, often said there that you should find about, at the end of your sermon, find a, a good number of application points, you know, seven or eight, and give them to the people. Tell them what to do. Uh, I've only got a couple for you, okay? Only a couple. Here's the first one. First of all, when you think about your sin, and when you think about that wonderful word, when you think of that wonderful word, forgiveness, remember that forgiveness comes from God. And so the first thing, the first application from a message like this is worship God. Give him glory and praise and love and adoration because of what he has done for you. Love him because he first loved you. And then there is a second thing that you have to do, and you do have to do it. There is no choice. put this in good Shakespearean fashion for you. Okay? Here we go. To forgive or not to forgive, that is not the question. There is no option. And Jesus said that over and over and over again. For those who repent of their sins, for those who come to you and ask for forgiveness and acknowledging what they've done wrong, your only option is to say, I forgive you. How can you do anything else in light of that God has forgiven you of all and the extravagant length to which he went in order to forgive, give you that forgiveness? So, last words. Colossians 3, 12 to 13. Therefore, 
as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have a, has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord Father, we acknowledge this morning that we are a sinful people, and we acknowledge that it is only because of your great love for us, only because of your will, your determination, and the obedience of your Son, Christ Jesus, that we are forgiven at great cost to ourselves. We worship you and praise you because what you have done to forgive us for our sins. And Lord, we also praise you and help you in this very difficult task of forgiving all those who have offended us. We want to hold on to our grievances. We want to hold on to our hurts. And we want to make that person suffer for what they have done. son who suffered help us father to be those who forgive as the lord forgave us we ask these things through christ our lord